Welcome to the Feisty Women's Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Gross, Ironman champion, PhD in women's history, and founder and CEO of Feisty Media. I started this show because I wanted to cut through the BS of diet culture and fitness culture and actually learn from high achieving women at the top of their game who have figured out how to feel and perform their best at every stage of life. So I chat with experts, elite athletes, and leaders who have learned to succeed despite the massive gender data gap in exercise and medical science and product development. Every episode is filled with information, advice, and anecdotes that will help you fulfill your potential as an athlete, mom, leader, or business owner. And listen up. If you don't subscribe to our women's performance newsletter, you are definitely missing out. It's totally free. So head over to womensperformance.com and subscribe now. That's womensperformance.com. This podcast is a production of Feisty Media. Hi, good morning, afternoon, or evening, Feisties. Uh, I hope that while you're listening to this podcast, you're running or maybe you're cleaning your house, maybe you're in the gym lifting, um, or maybe you're just chilling. Um, anyway, wherever you're listening, I I have an incredible interview for you today. So today's guest is the one and only Lauren Fleshman. Lauren is one of the most decorated American distance runners of all time, but... She is also an entrepreneur, a coach, an author, and a mom. She was a 15-time All-American and five-time NCAA champion. And as a professional runner, she was the U.S. National 5,000-meter champion in 2006 and 2010. She is the co-founder of Picky Bars and a brand strategy advisor at Wasel, which is a women's clothing brand. She most recently has become a New York Times bestselling author with her first book, Good for a Girl, A Woman Running in a Man's World. The most interesting thing about Lauren, I think, is that like often when we rattle off all these things that people are, like an entrepreneur, a coach, et cetera, she really has been successful at so many things. So I dive into a lot of that with Lauren, um, but we also t- like what's created her success, the mindset of her racing, which she outlines in her book. Um, but also we talk, she sp- talks openly about her eating disorders and eating disorders in sport in general, um, her struggle with depression during COVID, um, how she coaches young, talented women now and what she does differently to try to avoid some of the pitfalls that she fell into as a runner and culturally that we all sort of fell into in a certain time and still do, um, how she deals with her own perfectionism. We talk about the role of anger as part of advocacy work and so much more. So there is a lot here in this interview. But before we dive in, I want to talk a little bit more about our feisty directions for 2023. Um, as some of you may know, we are launching our online education platform. And our very first course is called Fueled, a comprehensive nutrition course for active women. And it comes out on April 1st or sales go live for it on April 1st. And then it's open, sales are open for about 10 days or so. Um, and then we will be running the first cohort through that course in April, which I'm super stoked about. When I founded Feisty Media five years ago, I wasn't really sure. I knew what our goals were. Like we wanted to create an empowering culture for active women, but I wasn't exactly sure how we were going to get there. And I knew that like a lot of it had to do with having more women, having a voice, telling stories in the media, um, having the podcasts that we have, you know, are a big part of that. But as we started to go down, down the road, I also, we also realized like, Hey, there's a, there's a lack of research in exercise physiology and even in women's health broadly, um, and that women are really wanting like quality information, information that they, that they can trust, or that's at least up to date with the information, with the science that we do have, um, about how to not just perform for sport in a sports con, well, perform in a sports context, but also how to like optimize. I I hate the word optimize, by the way. So, (laughs) but I am saying it. (laughs) I just, I just, I feel like it's been like co-opted by, um, by a lot of the kind of male led, um, 
podcasts in the wellness and fitness space. But um, but to really, I do mean optimize to like optimize our um, health and well-being as women. And so as we dug a little deeper and went out and tried to, f- to find out like what kind of information is out there and what courses actually exist in the world for active women and how like the everyday woman can continue to her learning journey about her health and her sport, we found that like research is often based primarily on men and then applied broadly to women overlooking um, any unique aspects of female physiology. Courses are often super scientific and lack practical application for us. Courses that are overly prescriptive then overlook the complexities of a woman's daily life. For example, juggling training, work, family obligations, and more, and also the particular life phase that we might be in, whether that's puberty, midlife, um, the phases of the menstrual cycle, pregnancy, postpartum, perimenopause, you know, it's, it feels like the, the, the floor is always, the floor beneath us is always shifting and changing and being able to have um, information to make decisions in those moments can be challenging. And it's largely why sides has ignored us up until this point. Um, so no, we're not ignoring us anymore. Not, not ignoring women anymore. Um, the other thing we found is that like often um, course offerings or books are sort of hyper-focused on a single topic. Like it might be diversity and inclusion, or it might be mental health, or it might be mental performance, or it might be um, menopause, for example. But in reality, like we want to look through all of these lenses to further understand any topic. So we need to know. So for example, in the field course, we need to know how like how history and the social context that we've grown up in and lived in has affected our views on um, body perfectionism, um, diet culture, and the kinds of the ways that we make decisions about food. So we want to like unpack all of that stuff first before we start actually understanding our own unique physiology. And lastly, we just decided that feisty just decided that women deserve a space to learn how to get the best out of our bodies. And we shouldn't have to spend all of our time wading through research or even podcasts to try to figure out what applies to us and what doesn't. So that is just a few of the real, those are just a few of the reasons why we are so excited to launch this first course. And then there will be more. I will make sure the link to the waiting list goes into the show notes. So in summary, the course is Fueled, a comprehensive nutrition course for active women, and it covers the cultural conversation around fueling and how diet culture uniquely targets and impacts women, how fueling impacts our bodies during exercise and how women process fuel differently at different stages of life, puberty, midlife, perimenopause, etc., and how active women need to fuel themselves before, after, and during workouts and Our goal is that everyone who takes the course will will walk away with the ability to create for themselves or the athletes that they work with a fueling plan that works for their active lifestyle. Okay, so enough about that. You can hear, I'm sure you can hear that I'm excited about it, but I am perhaps equally or even more excited about this conversation with Lauren. So sit back and enjoy. Lauren, hi. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So I just want to dive in and talk about, I actually, I want to talk about the eating disorder piece first that came out so strongly in your book. And, you know, I felt, I felt like I personally really related to it and it's kind of like that, um, I don't know, it's almost like a silenced part of the endurance sports world, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing, this is what I wanted to ask you about, like the thing that I really related to was how you were unpacking like how you were thinking about food and fueling like as it and as it evolved from when you were like younger and in high school through your college career etc because I also felt that um, and it felt to me kind of similar to my own experience where I don't I never felt like I evolved into a full-fledged like eating disorder but that I was told over time by coaches, professionals, books, et cetera, et cetera, that like restricting my eating was going to inform my performance, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, yeah, I, I just like was so grateful that you 
kind of were sort of telling that story from that perspective. Um, and, oh, and then in reality, it turned out like I actually had undiagnosed celiac disease, um, which oh, you wow. had mentioned as well. But, yeah. Yeah. What, like in your perspective um, and with the, with looking with your retrospective lens, as you've had to do, as you've written book, um, what would you recommend now for an elite runner or an endurance athlete for a fueling plan? Uh, I think that, um, well, we got to recognize where the boogeymen are, which is a lot of these messages that are fed to us as that we think of as benign messages, um, or that we have, we're taught to think of food as another variable to control. Um, and that controlling our calories and our frequency and, and ascribing it to something we could easily log and explain to, or like log on a spreadsheet, uh, somehow is wiser and better than what our body, our internal wisdom honed over millions of years would do for us. Um, and, and like challenging that, <laughs> that there are as an athlete, when you're ascribing, when you're trying to get high performance results, you should be looking up as many ways that you can control and, um, optimize, right. Uh, the ones that will give you something back that's valuable food and nutrition is one that people need to tread very lightly on and have uh, like a lot more respect for the fact that like these messages we're getting aren't benign. We should question the messages. We should question the concept of race weight. We should question the concept of body fat percentages associated with excellence. We should question this narrow view of what excellence can look like in a female body, just because there's a narrower view of what it looks like in a male body. That mm -hmm. doesn't mean that we also have that same view. So, uh, yeah, just bringing a little bit more um, rebellious spirit to it is what I would say. And um, and then a reminder that every elite athlete knows that when they're the least self-conscious, mm -hmm. that's when they're going to be the most powerful. Like if you want to be able to make a big move uh, at some point in the race, the thing that gives you the courage to do that is unself-consciousness. You can't be worried about what people will think. You can't be worried about failing. It's just... It's, and so it, your training choices, your eating choices should be making it easier for you to be unselfconscious, not making you more self-conscious. Yeah, I love that. You're most powerful when you're the least self-conscious. Um, that's amazing. And then you mentioned like the internal wisdom of our, that our bodies have around food that have been honed like over, you know, over years and years. How do we tap into that? Or how do you do that now or teach your athletes to do that? Um, I think just reminding them of that, that like this stuff that you're reading in these books is like a little speck of history in the long history of humankind. Um, and that you just look at the wisdom of animals in the wilderness, like they aren't tracking calories um, and they are eating when they can or when they want to, depending on the environment. And so we, yeah, we just, I just try to tell them that they need to, just like they need to get closer to the voice that says, Hey, this ankle is too sore to run. I should rest or, Hey, I have a tickle in my throat. I should maybe adjust what I'm doing or, Hey, I'm feeling really stressed. I should talk to somebody versus, um, plowing through everything and suppressing that inner voice that actually is full of wisdom. So similar to those areas, the voice that's telling us when we're actually hungry, even if it's not officially noon for lunchtime, um, or even if, if it's telling us we're full, even though usually we eat the whole sandwich, um, we need to realize that that voice is smart and and pay attention to it. And we have to combine that with some things we do know from nutrition science, which is like a really hard workout can suppress our appetite and make us not eat for several hours. So there are some times when we're pushing our body in these extreme ways that we didn't evolve doing, where we are going to need to um, intervene with some scientific based knowledge of on replenishment. But outside of that, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be over controlling ourselves that that's a disservice to ourselves and our inner knowing and wisdom. As we head into summer, rest and recovery are critical for improving sports performance, reducing stress and living a long and healthy life. We should all invest in better sleep. So think about the thing you lay your head on for eight hours a night. If it's not exactly right for you, it can lead to needless tossing and turning, or worse, have you waking up with an unrelenting kink in your neck. 
My new Lagoon pillow has helped me improve my sleep immensely by pairing me with the performance pillow that has everything I need. So I personally was matched with the Otter pillow. Shout out to Team Otter, which I love because it has a gentle cooling effect. And I was able to choose how much stuffing I wanted in it, which is super important to me because I'm doing a decent amount of CrossFit these days and my shoulders are kind of creaky. So having a pillow that is stuffed just to the right height keeps my neck and head in exactly the right position and comfortable for the entire night. And as of fall 2023, Lagoon launched their 100% Mulberry Silk pillowcases. It's cool to the touch, buttery soft, and great for your skin and hair. You've got to go check out this pillowcase if you want to feel great and look great every morning. Waking up for morning workouts has never felt better. I'm refreshed and pain-free thanks to my Lagoon pillow. To check it out for yourself, go to lagoonsleep.com forward slash performance and take the two-minute sleep quiz to find your perfect pillow match and then use the code PERFORMANCE for 15% off your first purchase. That's code PERFORMANCE at lagoonsleep.com forward slash performance, whole 15% off, and the link is in the show notes. You can just click through there. Endurance sports should be accessible to everyone, right? That's why we are so excited to be partnering with Motive. Motive is one of the fastest growing training apps in the world today with thousands of amateur athletes signing up every month and a nearly perfect 4.9 star rating in the app store. You are not a template and your training plan should not be either. Prepare for running races, triathlons, cycling events, duathlons, or swim runs, however your season schedule shapes up, and get training written by some of the best coaches in the world in each discipline who know what it takes to help amateur athletes reach their goal on race day. The app takes the training written by those experts and then creates the most optimal training plan for your schedule, abilities, and goals. Plus, the training is fully customized to your race schedule. How much you can train each week, your current abilities, and the goals you want to achieve in your race. You can use the app for free as long as you want or get all the upgraded features from the app for just $19.99 a month. But as a feisty listener, you can sign up at mymotive.com and use the code FEISTY for two months of full premium access. That's right, you get two months of premium for free. So you quite literally have nothing to lose. So head over to mymotive.com, M-Y-M-O-T-T-I-V.com and use the code FEISTY, F-E-I-S-T-Y. And on a personal note, I know the founder of Motive and he is driven to make triathlon and all endurance sports more accessible for the athletes who care about their performance, but who aren't quite ready for a full-time personal coach. If that sounds like you, definitely try the app for two months for free. You literally have nothing to lose. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested, and designed for men. Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are so excited to be working with Hedda's. Hedda's designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedda's unlocks the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research, creates better shoes for women that support their longevity and performance, and establishes new design standards to promote transparency in a male-biased industry. Hedda's have a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and to allow for female toe shape, a special kind of plate in the midsole to keep tired legs going, a narrow heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take the pressure off our Achilles, and a rounded instep to create a snug fit. 
Hedes has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've personally been running in the Alma Cruise and I love them. It's the shoe I always wanted and never knew I needed. The fit is perfect in every way. You can get your own pair of Hedas at Hedas.com and use the code FEISTY20 for 20% off. That's FEISTY20 at Hedas.com and it will all be in the show notes. Yeah, we, a little while back, we did a big um, push at Feisty that was called Fueled is Fast. And we created like all kinds of like educational content around fueling in particular for female athletes. And mm-hmm. um, a 20 year old kind of like up and comer triathlete, like high level, she said to me, and I thought I'm just, she asked me a question that I wasn't quite sure how to answer. So I'm, I'm passing it on to you. Oh, okay. Like, <laughs> where, <laughs> yeah. Um, where she thought, where she said, you know, she's, she's got the message, like as a young athlete, she's now got the message that she needs to eat. Right. Like where I feel like perhaps our generation got the message that we were supposed to restrict or whatever. Like Mm -hmm. she's kind of understood that, but she said, I also understand that like, you know, physics that like, like a mass moves, you know, it takes more energy to move a heavier mass over a distance. Right. Like, and she's like, what do I do with that information now? Like, how do I do I even try at all to be smaller or leaner or do I just completely let that go? Yeah. Well, I would say that the idea of physics um, being easy to apply to the human organism, mm-hmm. uh, especially the female human, human organism that fluctuates weight, like let's say five, six pounds, even per month uh, during the month uh, based on where we are in our cycle. Um, and like the fact that we would, if we're going to decide we're going to obsess over physics and that every pound matters, well, that's not helpful. It's inaccurate and it's not helpful. Our body changes constantly and it should change. Right. So it's like, it's a trap to get really fixated on, on the idea of physics. And then also the studies that are being done on human performance aren't being done on female bodied people. And so, and I just have like my own, I can just give an example. Like I ran 1458 and 15 minutes with an eight pound range. And, um, that's like, there's no, you know, if you talk to some physics nerd, they're going to tell you that there's no way that that could happen because there's quote a simple formula, but the female body has like the formula has way more variables that who says they're not more important. Like what is our hormonal function doing? Like how is our pituitary health our hypothalamic health? Um, that those things are probably more important than hitting any exact number or any standard of leanness. I like to also just look for examples in the um, like gymnastics world or other sports worlds or like tennis, like before Serena Williams, there was a lot more pressure on the female tennis players to ascribe to this, the same ideal sort of the distance runners are like leaner is better, blah, blah, blah. And when Serena's body was doing amazing things, looking different, she was being criticized. She was being, people were saying, imagine how much she needs to lose some weight, um, putting their expectation on her. And meanwhile, she was just reteaching us over and over again, that excellence looks like that body. Actually, this isn't the exception. This is just another form of excellence that's possible. And, uh, and so, yeah, I'd, I'd tell her to like, no, don't put any effort into it at all. <laughs> if you're eating well, and you are menstruating regularly, and you uh, have um, your mental health is good. Um, and you're training consistently, that is what excellence looks like to your body at this stage in your development and 20, especially right in the middle of adolescence, which goes through your mid 20s. You don't want to be messing with that. Like if you're 28, 29, and you want to start like, maybe trying to hone in something with your body weight a little bit. We know that after 14 years of menstruation, our menstrual cycle gets more robust and it can handle um, like periods of inadequate nutrition, short periods better without disrupting the menstrual cycle. But we know that younger people in during the adolescent phase have extremely sensitive menstrual cycles. Um, Their bodies are, are, if you're restricting, it's going to negatively impact you. So it's just not worth it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I love those examples of like thinking about even gymnastics, like as you were talking like, oh yeah, the body types that we accept as normal in gymnastics have evolved quite a bit the last few years. Same with like diving, you know, do you see any change in running at all? Like any shift of that dial of like the body types that are performing well? Uh, I do, but again, I see the same, we make this mistake of um, first calling those bodies something like stocky or like, you know, sports commentators will call out that body as if it's uh, strange that it's doing as well as it is because of how it looks, which feeds this myth of uh, this is the exception to the rule and that somehow this athlete would probably be even better if they could make their body look like quote the rule and what we need is a new rule. So, um, no, I, I see excellent women, um, performing in different bodies than the, let's say 1990s, uh, ideal. Um, but when you talk to them or when you hear them telling their stories on Instagram and, and various things, like they feel insecure in their body most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And I will change over time, right? Mm-hmm. Like things yeah. like this, someone has to be the first and go out there and like take, yeah. and essentially, unfortunately, like handle that kind of criticism. Yeah. We have to let our minds be changed. Like we have to look at the 2021 gymnastics team and say, this isn't the exception. This is the new rule. We have to look at Serena and say, she's the new rule and whatever the equivalent is in distance running or triathlon and be like, yes, that is also excellent. I can look like that too. Um, or whatever I, my body looks like when I'm doing the things we talked about earlier, training consistently, eating well, my mental health is good. My physical health is good. And I'm menstruating regularly. Like this is what an excellent body looks like for me. And it's actually best to not look around, um, any energy again, that's spent looking around outside of you is creating self-consciousness, um, worry about comparison and whatever. And, and if you can not do that, then you're unselfconscious and you can be more powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I should say, and I should have said this at the beginning. I like, I loved the book. Um, oh, and, and I read, like, I read the whole second half of it, like yesterday. <laughs> so That's so, awesome. Yeah. Like for a yeah partner so it's who, very fresh in your mind. <laughs> yeah. It's very, it's very fresh. And I was thinking about like, like what are some of the themes, you know, coming out? And I'll and I'll pull I've pulled out a few of them. But the first one I want to ask you both that I think um, a lot of our audience will relate to is like you seem to have this strong thread of perfectionism, like in your personality, right? And like, and I'm saying that I think that there's definitely like good and bad to that. Like, what are the mm-hmm. things that you feel like? What are the ways you feel like you're? Is that true? And then in yeah. what ways has that perfectionism like? sort of helped you? And in what ways do you feel like you should have let go at certain times? Yeah, I think that perfectionism helped me in the stubbornness sense of like, I want to get this right. And uh, that certainly served me with the stick to across a variety of disciplines, academic, music, um, relationally, and sport, obviously. But then where it has become negative is when it is um, in comparison. So I'm driving for some definition of perfectionism that's outside of myself or when I've connected um, perfecting something with, then I will be loved, then I will be approved of, then I will be enough. So when it's, when it's related to my value as a human, that's when it's unhealthy. Yeah. Interesting. I, uh, yeah, I think a lot of athletes like sort of like, oh, sometimes we tend to think our perfectionism is bad. That's kind of why I asked you first, if it's like, are there good things? I don't think it's, yeah. Yeah. I love that you brought out that like stick to itness, right? Because that is absolute, that does, we know that like consistency creates success, right? So yeah, I think it's okay. It's, it's satisfying to get something right. And it's satisfying to know that when you work at something regularly, you get better at it. Right. So that's great. Um, so maybe we just need a different word than perfectionism. It's associated with so many negative right. things, but I guess like <laughs> when I think of perfectionism, I try to, I call myself a, a recovering perfectionist um, because there's a never satisfied part of perfectionism that I think defines it. It's like, it, it will never be enough. You master the thing. And then instead of stopping and being and enjoying the fruits of your labor, when you finally do meet that bar you've set for yourself. You just raise the bar again and you raise the bar again, you raise the bar again, and you never get to be satisfied. You're chronically unsatisfied. And that um, is a joy killer, like 
for life just in general. Uh, if you do that long enough in any pursuit, you will you will kill that pursuit for yourself. You will limit the the length of time in which you can do it for your life um, mm. by not allowing yourself to tap into the joy and satisfaction along the way. Yeah, definitely. And the opposite of joy, um, it would be like, it, like I heard you say when you, after you wrote that second letter to Nike, both the ad campaign, um, and you said that you were like, you described being angry. Right. And I wonder, like, you know, you've done quite a lot of like advocacy work over the years. Um, what is the place of anger? Do you think like in advocacy work in general? Well, I think that, um, for me, where anger come from, came from was, I'm angry. I even need to be having this conversation. I'm angry. You haven't already thought of this, that you don't already see me as human enough to have thought of this, accommodated it, created a safe space. I'm angry that you're making me do the work of informing you um, when I'm the vulnerable person here. I'm the disposable person. And now I have to also be the one that informs you. So I think there can be, that's where a lot of my anger comes from in advocacy work. Um, but advocacy work, so it can drive you to, it can drive you to, um, like anger can drive you to do something about it. But I think that love is a more powerful force to do something about it. Mm. Um, and if you like, and now that's where I operate from is like, sure, I have moments of anger, like I'm angry that women and girls are being harmed in the sports system. And that does motivate me. But I love running. And I love what sports can do when it's being offered in a safe and healthy and affirming way to people. And so I want that for more people. And so in the end, that is going to give me the staying power to write an entire book that takes three years is this love of the sport, love of what it can give you, love of what it has given me and wanting that for more people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it took you three years to write the book. Yeah. What was the process like? Like, what were the the challenges that you came up against? Oh, there are a lot of them. Um, <laughs> some of them were <laughs> just standard first time author things of not knowing what you're doing. Uh, trying to write long form is a lot different than an essay or a blog post or whatever, or an Instagram post. Having multiple threads, narrative threads that need to like weave together and come in at certain narrative arcs, creating tension. Like it's just difficult over 288 pages in a different way. So that inner critic of like, what are you doing? Why did you think you could do this? You're a blogger. This is never going to work. Like they're going to discover you're a fraud. <laughs> um, and, and then there was things specific to the time. So the pandemic lockdown was um, a month after I sold the book to Penguin Press. So wow. I planned to do it over the course of one year. And then I found myself homeschooling my kids because there was no school and working from home with my spouse in a 1000 square foot two bedroom house with one bathroom. So the four of us were just home all the time and both of us needed to find a way to work. And um, so all of that was bad. And then I, in the process of all that, had a mental health crisis where I experienced a depressive episode. And then I had to ask for an extension, dig myself out of that, try to create places where I could feel creative um, in all of the time of insecurity and lack of safety and just the, like the, the world we were living in at the time. So all of that made it harder. Mm -hmm. How did you find places that you, like, this is a struggle for, I think a lot of us, like places where you feel creative. How did you make that space in the midst of all that? I tried a lot of different things. Like I did some of the romanticized things of renting a cabin in the woods and trying to like, <laughs> do the writer thing. Um, but in the end, what helped the most was when things opened up enough to meet with other women writers who were putting themselves on the line. And I had, a, I had two women, an occasional third that we would just get together in one of their dining rooms and have accountability, um, feel less alone. And then, yeah, that honestly, that just made all the difference. That was the safest place, just being among other people taking similar risks and doing similarly hard work. Yeah. And so did you, when you met with them, did you create this space? Did you write together or did you, was it more like the conversations that you took sort of the joy from back home to your writing process? It was very much like a running group. Like there's the chit chat in the beginning where you're connecting on the human level and have a chance to maybe vent about something, get a little, little bit of encouragement or quick nugget of advice from someone who has seen that in a different part of their life. And then just shutting up and getting to work. 
Um, it feels the most like a long tempo run. So you could have a few sentences here and there, but really you're motivated to tune into your body and your breath and just and the pace and the rhythm. And you're not thinking about the teammates. You're glad they're there. They provide like a, like a safety and, uh, and accountability, but outside of that, you don't want to be interacting. And, um, and then you finish and then you, if you have time, you talk a little bit before you leave, but more often than not, because of various responsibilities, child related or uh, work related, we would exit at different times and just be like, bye, good luck. And then the next person would, you know, would do the same thing an hour later and then we would meet again. So it was, it was really nice. Um, every now and then we'd get together for a drink or something and just have a purely social outing where we got to like talk deeper about the challenges that we were stuck with the book and like not feel like we were taking away someone else's really valuable writing time by dedicating a lot of energy and breath and time to problem solving. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, as I've been building like Feisty Media, the like the media company, I like I I came on the same challenge. I was like, actually, I think I need to be around other entrepreneurs who are building big things, you know. And that just changed everything for me as well. That's kind of why I was asking about your process too. Um, and you're right. I never thought about that. That it's kind of like um, like an entrepreneur meetup or a writers meetup or anything like that could is like a training session. Mm -hmm. Like what you described is the same thing I did at CrossFit this morning. Yeah, got there, we chatted. You know, we did our thing together. We encouraged each other. We we were all worn out, left at different times. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's sort of like yeah, the same thing. And then you know they'll uh -huh. be there the next time. Totally. Was depression something that you had? struggled with before or is this something new for you that you had to process during well during COVID I never had like a depressive episode that required medical intervention before I'd ha I would say I was a highs and lows person I'm a sensitive person I'm a creative person a lot of the kind of classic things you see in creative people um, a little bit tender to the world and um and attuned in a little bit of a different way so but this yeah this was new hmm and how did you deal with it? Um, at first I didn't, <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just felt like I kind of had the destructive athlete mentality of like, oh, I just need to push through this. Um, or like having a false equivalency to other times in my life, I'd been blue and that this was just like those because I have been blue before. And, uh, even though I have read about depression and known people who have been depressed, I think there must've been some small part of me that thought that it was in their head or they should have just been able to like get themselves out of it or mm -hmm. just giving, not giving enough power to the mental illness side of it, like enough respect to that. So once I finally it was pretty deep in the hole and I couldn't connect with my children's joy, for example, I couldn't go for a run, like the things that I used to do to bring myself joy. I could like you just, that's, I don't know if you've had a depressive episode, but it's yeah. so wild when you can't even do the things you know logically will help you feel better you just can't do them and um and so I started to well I sought help from my primary care physician and got a referral to a psychiatrist I got on medication I tried one then tried a different one and then I was reading James Clear's book um Atomic Habits at the time because I had this deadline looming and I was just like how do I develop some sort of little habits to get myself back on track here. And the, I knew movement was a huge part of it. I needed to move my body, but I just like couldn't get myself to do it. And he had this really powerful section about how frequency matters a lot more than duration and uh, to set a really low bar for yourself. That, and so I set a half a mile a day, mm -hmm. um, which as someone who was a professional distance runner mm -hmm. for many years, like I used to think a 20 minute run didn't even count because it was only 20 minutes. Oh and yeah. I remember having the 25 minute cutoff <laughs> after that. It was like not worth putting your shoes on. Right. <laughs> and like now, man, I like live by the 20 minute exercise. But, um, at that point I had to put the bar even lower. I just need to be at a half mile, which is from my house around my neighborhood park and back. And if I, I knew that I could commit to doing that every day, I like, I could wrap my head around that, that like, if I do this every day, eventually I'll, I'll start to develop a habit of movement again. And then there will be some days where I'll go out for that half mile, but then I'll feel good enough to do the mile loop or maybe even the three mile loop. And there were many nights at first, it was like nine 30 and I hadn't done it yet, but I 
I was like humbled enough by the depression and how bad it was. And like having had, had suicidal ideation and the medication, I think was one of the things that, if not the thing that helped me just get that half mile in a day. And, and, and then it just gradually got better. I didn't feel like there was any moment I was better. Um, and then I similar, I created a similar structure in writing. It would just be like 15 minutes set a timer, write, And then a couple hours later, 15 minutes set a timer, right. And instead mm-hmm. of it needing to be productive from the sense of like, it turned out well, or it accomplished something on my outline. It was purely like, I can control 15 minutes. I can get that done. And then you start to feel like a writer again. And if you move every day, you're a mover again, and you're not a person that is stuck in bed. Mm. Yeah. I love that. I think so often we get caught in this kind of idea that we have to do something for two or three hours or else it's not worthwhile. You know, whether that's, it's not even necessarily with sport, like sports, the place where we learn the lessons almost, but like, you know, just that idea of, okay, I can write a book. I'm going to do 15 minutes a day. Um, Yeah. That's really inspiring. I had, um, I also like, I had clinical depression when I was like 19, 20. Um, I've talked about it quite a lot in the podcast, but I'm very grateful for the things that I, learned um during that time do you feel um sort of grateful in any way for the lessons the biggest thing I'm grateful for is just it made me less of a judgmental bee you know like I feel like I developed so much compassion um for mental health beyond any level I'd had before I mean I wouldn't even say I was like that I didn't believe in for mental health before but I just really believed in the individualism side of things that you could just if you just like tried hard enough, you could get through this. And, uh, and that has shifted my belief about a lot of things, you know, poverty and unemployment and um, just a lot of things that like identifying with the feeling of being un- being feeling so far behind or so down that you can't take the first step and um, that how human that actually is. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. Um, I got off track. (laughs) It happens. Maybe we're exactly Um, where we're supposed to be. Yeah, I think we probably are. (laughs) Uh, You know, you're, you're so many things like you're a runner, entrepreneur, advocate, coach, mom, writer, you said music earlier, you know, um, do you ever have a voice in your head that's like, you can't do all those things, or at least you can't do them well? Like, how do you combat that? Because clearly you have done a lot of those things extremely well, right? So how do you shut down that kind of voice? Well, I think like the, I've, I've done a good job of shutting down the voice that says you have to do it well for it to be worth it. Because I'm certainly not an excellent musician, you know, <clears throat> I enjoy it. It gives me a something that I can like get excited about learning and then I can quickly see progress. Whereas most things in my life now, I don't see noticeable progress at the things I've been at for 20 years. Um, But I can sit down to learn Claire de Lune and a few months later have made progress on Claire de Lune. (laughs) And I'm never going to do a recital (laughs) (laughs) and that's okay. Um, Mm -hmm. That feels good to me. And Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, I guess like, I've always just had a variety of interests and I feel better when I am giving a little bit of time to multiple interests than when I'm singularly focused. So it's purely selfish. I just, yeah, I just need to need to. Yeah. And you talk about, you know, you talk about motherhood a little bit in the book, but it did kind of leave me with this question mark of like, because then even like after becoming a mom, you were like going back out and training, you're still a pro athlete, you're still doing Olympic trials, you know, like how did you balance all that? No, I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I struggled. I mean, I resented motherhood for a good portion of time. I think really my relationship with motherhood has changed the most in the last year. Um, I think that, yeah, like uh, it made everything else that I was trying to do more difficult to do. And and then it, and like, I wasn't a baby person. So for some people, I think if you connect really well with infants and that stage of development is, is naturally rewarding to you, then it's easier to swallow the ways it's that motherhood is making your career more difficult or just keeping your house organized more difficult or your relationship with your partner more difficult. So, um, but it wasn't until my kids got into the sweet spot of ages that I 
get the most joy and reward from so far that now I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. It makes these other things harder, but like they're amazing. And I cherish these relationships and there is a significant amount of the time we spend together, certainly not all, where I'm really enjoying and glad that I did this. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard. I really, yeah, I I totally relate to that thing of like not enjoying the young childhood development phase um, <laughs> yeah but finding a new like there's enough examples now of like that I don't I didn't I don't think I expected that of myself either you know which I feel really lucky because I think sometimes um, women feel like we're somehow failing if we don't enjoy every phase of our kids development but like it's okay to not be a toddler person <laughs> it is <laughs> and I think person. like that whole recovering perfectionist thing too I think there's a culture of perfectionistic parenting out there and most of it falls on the mom um that we're somehow in charge of making sure that we show them the index cards with the black and white shapes early enough before they first roll over and that we're giving them every chance to have the maximum brain development and physical development. And that's just like so anxiety producing. And I think like I have some good examples in my life, some friends that I've made over the years that are parents that are that have helped me, have given me more courage to release that and to just be like, hey, I don't like need to be a perfect parent. And it's okay that there are some things that I didn't put a lot of effort into optimizing for them. I am not afraid of having a mediocre child. Like, I just feel like <laughs> most people yeah. are somewhere in the middle at most things. And that is great. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so like, and if they find something they're truly passionate about, and they're going to work hard at, then maybe they could be excellent at something, but I'm not going to put that responsibility on me. Like my job is to be a good enough parent to keep them safe and fed and uh, do my best at that and, um, and loved and let a little bit more be up to chance, I guess. Yeah. I've heard from older parents too, that were just humbled by life. And they're like, Hey, you can try as hard as you want. You can make do quote everything right. In the end, your kid is their own person and they're going to live their own life and make their own choices. So like, you might as well go easier on yourself from the beginning. Yeah. And then like the parenting best practices, like in society or in, you know, at wisdom changes. Yes. Right. Constantly. So it's like, it's like, oh, but you told me to do that. (laughs) Yeah. Wait, I'm not supposed to do that anymore. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. It's not unlike diet culture, really. It's like recognizing that the longer you're around, the more you realize these are trends and they change. And so like, yeah, read about it. See if there's any nuggets that feel like they make sense. Maybe check out the research a little and then never lose track of what feels right to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's so important, especially for us as women. Um, you you know, I was thinking about the way that you describe your races, you know, like you just went out there, you weren't afraid to like, have you heard that expression about like burning matches? Uh, no, you'll have to tell me. We used to use it in, we used to hear, use it in Iron Man a lot. Like you only have, the idea is that you only have so many matches to burn Mm -hmm. right and if you go too hard too soon or whatever you're going to run out of matches somehow and I've always kind of wondered a question this like because that I'm reading I mean obviously you're racing over a much shorter distance but you know it sounds like you're just like burning match after match (laughs) all heart out there that's going for it right and I see like I I saw that theme too in like you're not just you know, you're not just making healthy bars to eat as snacks for your recovery. You're like turning it into like a multi-million dollar business, right? <laughs> like, is there, like, do you, what do you, I mean, I kind of wondering, like, just getting to that place where you're like all in on things. Um, do you, I don't know, like, I, I kind of love it. And I'm wondering <laughs> if you have advice for folks who like tend to hold back a little bit or feel like yeah. nervous about doing that. Like, has there been any, been any disadvantage to like jumping all in for you or? Yeah, well, I'd say like, um, when I jump in, I jump in all the way. And, but I don't jump in all the way from the beginning, usually. Like we cooked picky bars where we made them in my house for the first two and a half years. Um, and I, I'm sure I could have accelerated it sooner. I could have raised money and I could have gone into a manufacturing facility sooner and done more traditional path that some people entrepreneurs might consider burning all the matches, you know, really going it all in. Um, But we grew picky bars organically. Like when we got a certain amount of revenue, then we would put that into the company. We just grew at the natural rate that it was growing. And, and that meant we grew really slowly and that, that we were able to sell the company, but we were able to sell the company like 
12 years later or whatever, versus maybe we could have done it in five years. And then similarly with my, the way I raced, um, my kick was 600 meters to go, which is very long for the 5k. Um, and, but I wasn't leading early in the race and I, I was conserving my matches. Um, even though the whole race does feel like your body's on fire because it's a 5k. So it's a 15 minute (laughs) event, but there was psychologically and physically still nuance in the way I was expending my energy. Um, and then when I, but I would light like 90% of the matches with 600 meters to go, knowing that that could backfire. Um, and, and that was just something that I think what I would say to people is it's okay not to like go all in on things, but like it's worth the question. What's holding me back? Is it fear or is, am I actually using the strategy that's best for me? Is this like, what's dictating this? And on the flip side, I can give the story of Alicia Montano, who's a friend of mine who won multiple 800 meter championships. And she um, came just shy of a medal several times. She's since gotten some of those medals because of the doping stuff of the athletes in front of her. But at the time she received a lot of criticism because she had this strategy where she would go out from the gun and lead. And she ran her first lap very hard. And then oftentimes would get caught in the last 50 meters and then end up just out of a medal. Um, but then it also would work for her or she would win diamond league races and win us championships, win the Olympic trials. Uh, and she was winning medals. Like she was getting to finals and getting fourth and people would try to convince her to try a different strategy, to start slower, to not burn all those matches. And in the end, her conclusion was, no, this is the best way for my body to run. I'm the expert on my body and I'm going to keep doing it this way. And it's actually the reason for my success, not the reason for what you perceive as my shortcoming. Right. Or what nobody else gets to decide when and where, like how many matches you have, when and where you're spending them. Yes. Like that, and that's kind of what I heard you say too, even about picky bars is like, you know, what we might see from the outside is like going all in on a business. And that's easy to say when you like when you sold the business, but actually the 12 years, <laughs> 12 years of hard work was probably a slog. I, I it was, guess, right? <laughs> yeah, it was. Cool. Okay. I want to talk about coaching a little bit too. Um, I think, you know, I think we're like in the middle of a lot of like of a cultural shift with um, female athletes in particular in running um, in my own sport and endurance in sports in general, you know, like we just, I thought, I thought maybe CrossFit was more immune to the eating disorder culture. And then now we have some athletes coming forward saying like that, that affects them as well. Um, what do you think is needed in terms of coaching education so that we can better serve women and girls? Mm, I think that this concept of a variety of what excellence could look like in the female body, like having some humility, coaches need to be humble and, Mm -hmm. and like, just not be presenting an idea of ideal of an ideal body. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the things um, I think that if you're coaching females who are in the development stage, so 12 and a half to 24, 25, um, that that is a female body that's still becoming. And so it's really difficult to like, to get any, to have any valuable, to, it's not valuable for you to measure their body fat or measure their weight or whatever during those stages, because they are in flux and they should be, they're not done cooking. (laughs) Um, And I think that that's something that they, almost none of them are really aware of because that's not how the male body works. And we've taken male linear improvement and male puberty pretty quickly uh, turns into male improvement. Female body is different than that. Male or female puberty doesn't immediately turn into female improvement, but it does when given like a little incubation period then it will. Um, and so they need to be aware of that and coach accordingly. Mm. Are, there, are there things that you tell the athletes that you coach to help them mentally sort of realign if you see them going down kind of a line of feeling negatively about themselves or their bodies or being affected by diet culture? Yeah, I think just like the first thing is just, hey, you're not going to compete your best if you um, are are feeling uh, uncomfortable. Unconfident in yourself. So, mm. 
Sometimes that requires changing an action. Like if you're feeling not confident and you've only trained three out of every seven days for the last month, well, yeah, you need to do something different. You need to actually be training more. Um, but if you feel not confident because of what the number on the scale is saying, well, I would recommend getting rid of the scale and then eating nutritionally, um, doing your training and trusting that your body is going to change in adaptation to the work that you're putting in. And um, like that, yeah, I, I don't know if I answered your question, but that's just like one of the things that I try to do is just not um, not let them spend too much time in the pie chart thinking about those things. Like there's like many other things right. that they should be dedicating yes. their time to. And it's very easy to get stuck on this one over here when um, the food and weight one. Yeah, for sure. And then when you, I think you sort of answered that earlier too. And you said like, you'll, you'll perform your best when you're the least self-conscious. Yeah. Right. And so like, that's, we're coming full circle a little bit. Well, and that's the thing is you're, you have the body you have right now. So, and in general, like these athletes need to be performing even when their body isn't where they'd love for it to be. So you, that's part of sport is just competing in the body you have right now. So you might as well develop a practice of self-acceptance and at a minimum body neutrality, like body positivity might be a bit of a stretch to say, Hey, I'm going to love this body, even though it looks different than my peak race season body last year or whatever, but just at least a neutrality to it. This is the body I have moving on. What's my race strategy? What are my tactics? How am I going to execute that strategy? Let's put the energy into that and then trust that my body will continue to adapt with the training and the time. Yeah. Like the focus on what your body can do instead of what it looks like. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there anything you would change about the book now? Oh, um, I don't think so. Which is kind of wild to say. That's that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I feel pretty good about it. And, uh, Apparently I made one typo. So I guess I would change that. Uh, oh, I didn't see any typos. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was actually a factual error. The first NCAA <laughs> championship in track and field was uh, apparently in, in 1982, not 1981. But, oh, um, <laughs> that's the only error. So far, I think you're doing great. That's, that's the only that's one the only I've been so made aware of. I'm sure there's <laughs> right. others, but no, I'm, I'm happy yeah. with how it turned out. It was, um, it was definitely my best effort. And I don't want to go back and do it again. So I might as well be satisfied. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Would you, would you write another book, like a different book on a different topic? Uh, I'd have to think long and hard about that. Like a, <laughs> like a long form book like this versus like a book of essays. It's easier for me to imagine writing a book of essays. Um, yeah. And people say it doesn't really get that much easier. So I'm just like, I don't know. I have to think about it. <laughs> a little recovery time first. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I want to take like a leaf of the book of one of your NCAA coaches um, and ask you like, what do you want the legacy of this book to be? I want this legacy to be uh, the opening the door for conversations that have needed to happen for a long time. Like no matter what age you are, no matter how long it's been since you competed, that you are cracking open a door and calling a teammate or texting a teammate, an old teammate and saying, Hey, remember this? Like I I see, I see that differently now. And then ideally there are thousands or tens of thousands of women who have, who just slightly changed the story that they've held about themselves. Um, And when we can change the story we hold about ourselves, then who knows what happens, what ripples come from that. Right. But I think the most common one that happens in women's sport right now is that during those developmental years that are totally normal, where our bodies are changing, where we're still becoming, that's when we get negative messaging or we're encouraged down negative pathways of restriction. Um, And the ones of us who don't thrive in that system often leave saying I, with believing I didn't have what it took, I wasn't disciplined enough. Uh, or what I just wasn't, I didn't have the talent. And then in reading this book, you know, it's like, no, you, your prime was in your mid to late twenties and beyond. And, uh, and you weren't doing anything wrong. Like you continuing to menstruate and not starve yourself was actually the better choice, uh, the healthier choice, like things like that. Mm-hmm. That was definitely a big takeaway for me because I don't think I was aware of that sort of like early twenties 
phase, you know, that's still where there's still some hormone changes and, and things haven't quite settled in. And 14 years for the menstrual cycle to sort of settle in, like that is something I despite out all of my own research and stuff I had not heard before. Yeah, so. well, it's, it's there's very little research on it. So this is like drawing a conclusion on something that needs a lot more research. But there is a study, I can't remember the author right now, um, where they experimented with um, food restriction, like caloric restriction. I think it only took five days of caloric restriction, like a set amount for um, for females cycle to be affected. Uh, when they were in that earlier stage of their cycle where it's not quite as robust and resilient. And then the same effect did not happen in the older group. So this is something that would be really helpful to study more. Uh, I think it would just give a lot more like scientific basis that would give courage to athletes and coaches during those ages to like really respect the cycle. Yeah, I'm so with you. And when I, when I read it, you know, I was like, oh yeah, the just even just observation of what, you know, 20 to 24 year olds tend to look like, I'm like, of course, like, well, how did I not notice this before? And how did I not see it in myself too? Right. So it like lands as true, you know, that we just need a little extra time. And then if you imagine like the damage that you're then doing, you're probably doing extra damage with that caloric restriction too. I would guess again, like you say, like the studies need to be done, but like, yeah. wow. And anecdotally, like the athletes who who have the ability and privilege to continue competing for 20 years, their bodies change over time. Like they tend to, to lean out in their later years. Um, and when asked, we'll often say like, no, I'm not doing anything different. It's just easier to be like, to, my body just wants to look like this now. Whereas like when I was 22, if I wanted to look like this, I had to engage in a lot of unhealthy behaviors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what are you up to now? What are you working on? Um, really trying to get this book in as many hands as possible because from the messages that I'm getting on direct messages on Twitter and Instagram and emails and whatnot, like it's it's shifting some things for people. And um, and I want to make sure that I continue to like encourage people to read it during this short window of time when people are paying attention. And then um, and then I don't know. I think we'll see after that. But I'm still like this is this is the culmination of probably 30 years of a story in my life. And it feels like I want to like really bring it home (laughs) before I move on to another story. Yeah. And I think that's smart. I feel like often we underestimate how much, like how much work it takes to, to like also push something out. Like there's the work in the writing and we see it and we know it and then, or whatever it is creating the product or, you know, whatever that is, but then the work of like actually continuing to talk about it and get it out there and, you know, have that impact is, is real and is hard. So. So I have to do some creative thinking about how to do that, like engaging with maybe with book clubs or teams, finding a sustainable way that I can do that. And creating some discussion questions where people can self-direct with their communities if they want to, to help. Cause I get a lot of people are like, I read this now I'm terrified. Like, what do I do now? So there may be an opportunity for me to help guide in that next stage. Yeah. Yeah. I think there, I think there will be, um, where's the best place to buy the book? <laughs> oh, anywhere books are sold is great. I always try to push the local indie, your local indie. Um, but you may need to call them and make sure they have it in stock. And, and then, beyond that, you know, anywhere books are sold really. Yeah. And where can we follow you and your journey? Um, you can follow me at Fleshman Flyer on Instagram, Lauren Fleshman on Twitter and laurenfleshman.com. And I host um, running and writing retreats called Wilder Running. And wilderrunning.com is where those are going to live. I'm going to be picking those back up where we use a mixture of a writing practice, a movement practice and the outdoors uh, to return to like our kind of wilder, less self-conscious self. Sounds amazing. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for talking with us today. Really appreciate the conversation and everything that you've done for women in sports. Oh, thank thank you. you. Right back at you. (laughs) Thank you. And wishing you luck. As a lifelong runner and triathlete turned CrossFitter, I am stoked to announce that the athletic eyewear brand Tofosi Optics has joined us as a partner here at Feisty Media. 
Tofosi sports glasses hit all the marks for athletes. They're shatterproof poly bicarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance, which I 100% need. They stay in place when you are moving. The hydrophilic rubber nose pads actually get more grippy the more you sweat, so they are secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in hot conditions. No matter what sport you do, Tofosi has shades for you. Whether you love tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, or just hanging out on the beach. They are super reasonably priced, which I love, so I can have multiple pairs that go with any outfit. And of course, feisty listeners get a special discount. So, head on over to tofosioptics.com and use the code FM20. FM as in Feisty Media to get 20% off your order. That's FM20 at tofosioptics.com. I'll put a link in the show notes to make it easy for you. Building muscle can be tough and gains can be so slow, even for those of us who do a lot of strength training. As an ex-endurance athlete who is now in perimenopause, I know this all too well. It can be frustrating to put in the time in the gym and not see the results I'm looking for. That's why it's super important to take the right supplements at the right time. One of those supplements is essential amino acids, which are needed to trigger muscle protein synthesis. Muscle protein synthesis happens when you eat high quality protein like eggs or whey. And by supplementing with additional essential amino acids, you can make sure you are getting the full benefit of your training sessions. Targeted essential amino acid formulas can be up to four times more effective than just eating protein. I've been taking amino acids for almost a year and in combination with eating quality protein and a couple other supplements, I have managed to turn the tides on age-related muscle loss, which starts at 30 for women by the way, and I have continued to make strength gains as I head towards 50. AminoCo has been a longtime sponsor of Feisty Media and has supported all of our brands and podcasts over the years. I recommend starting with AminoCo Perform, and you can grab some at aminoco.com forward slash performance. If you enter the code performance, you will save 30% and receive a free gift if it is your first purchase. Give it a try and let me know how it goes. That's aminoco.com forward slash performance and use the code performance to save 30%. 